Hello. Hello. And welcome to Planet Marzipan, the Fish and Marillion podcast. I'm Meza, and here's my mate, Craig Houston. Welcome to Planet Marzipan 2024. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, yes. I'm here with my attractive assistant, Fair Goose Why, thank you, dear sir. <laughs> Fair <Goose-do. laughs> But we've got some more friends. In fact, we've got the Cakey Boys back together. And if that means nothing to you, I'm sorry, but this is a historic moment. There's a cakey boy that's been on the pod before, Mr. Mark Kennedy. Hello, I'm John Merrick and so's my wife. <laughs> and another cakey boy that's been on the pod before, Mikey. Hello, hello, and happy 2024 to everyone. Thank you. And the baby cake, or sporty cake, I'm not sure which he was. Which were you, Dave? Uh, it's definitely not sporty cake, certainly not okay. anymore. Back in the day, maybe. Back maybe. in the day. The man who brings the average age of the cakey boys down by about 20 years. <laughs> He's not that young. Come on. Dave Dobby. Hey. Hello. So how do we know each other, guys? Are we going to do that? Uh, we could be here for weeks. Or yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We won't do that again. But everybody else has got their chance to tell us about how they first heard about the band and where they first saw them live, apart from you, Dave. So do you want to... Tell us your story. Yeah, I will do. Um, so first heard about the band through this album, actually, when I was about seven years old, because my dad had the record and I loved it. So used to um, picked out a few songs that I really liked on that and I had them on a cassette. Um, kind of drifted away, as you do when you go into your teens. You tend to listen to different music to your parents and go into all that Britpop stuff. And it was probably through The Verve, which were the first band I liked that my dad actually popped his head in the door and said, oh, I like that, that he introduced me back to music he liked. So Pink Floyd, he played his pulse and things like that. And I loved that and and got back in the Marillion by going through his through his CD collection. Um, so it kind of started with Season's End, although I was very young when it came out. Um, so you were seven? I was seven. Okay. That's right. Seven we, haven't done this for, we haven't done an album for a few weeks. Craig, how old were you when this came out? I was 17. Where did you first see the band live, Dave? Uh, that was at Nottingham Rock City on the dot-com tour. Stood to the left of me. Yeah, yeah I think I was just next to you, John. That's right. Yeah. We so, didn't know each other at that point. No, we didn't. So we, we um, I met John and Craig. I know we weren't going to do this, but I'll, I'll cover it quickly. Um, I met John at, at that concert, uh, and we got chatting. Uh, I was super. I remember being super excited. John seems to think I was very excited. You were very excited, but it's understandable. It's understandable. It was a great set list. It was a really, really good set list that gig as well. Got to see all the stuff I wanted to see. Um, and then I met Craig. I was seventeen then. I met Craig a few nights later, which was my eighteenth birthday night out. Yeah, we're in BMX in the pub in Newcastle. Yeah, just by random chance. I, I clocked the t-shirt and I decided <laughs> to wind you up, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, he was like, uh, uh, "What was it?" 
um, Scottish heavy metal band and all that, and being a, a fervent supporter of the band, considering none of my mates like them, uh, I was about to give this guy some verbals, and uh, turned out he had, a, I think it was a Strange Engine t-shirt on, so the rest was history, and it obviously turned out that you guys knew each other already, so it was a kind of weird cosmic symmetry. It was. Uh, yeah. It was meant to be. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for that, Dave. Well, we're going to talk about the road to season's end in this episode, so... Uh, if you can cast your mind back to 1988, initially, the uh, dark day. Teenagers, we were young teenagers at the time. You speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Mikey. I would have liked to be a teenager, but I wasn't. This one was a preteen. <laughs> so yeah, back in 88, when uh, when Derek sent the band a, a letter. Um, I mean, they played their last gig with Fish. On the twenty eighth, sorry, the twenty third of July, eighty eight, at Fifeard, the infamous Fifeard, yeah. yeah, infamous Fifeard, and we do have the last track that they played released officially, don't we, Mark? Yes, um, Market Square Heroes, wasn't it? Yeah, Market Square yeah. Heroes that features on the um, early st- yeah, early stages highlights to two CD set. It's the last song, um, but yeah, the. Uh, that was the last gig they played, and then they tried to sort of work up some stuff at Dalgonar Castle. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, I've been looking on uh, Tim Glasswell's European site, which has got some really, really good articles on it. Uh, there's a quote from Mark Kelly about the uh, aborted sessions, writing sessions. So uh, at this point, any sensible people would have said, let's take a few months off and recharge our creative batteries. But we didn't. We went to Glenshee in Scotland and locked ourselves in a castle. They did write some stuff. I mean, we've got the demos that appear on the Clutching at Straws bonus disc. Uh, Exile on Princess Street, a voice in a crowd. They worked up a version of the, what became the music for the uninvited guests with Fish's lyrics for Lucky over the top. And a piece of music for Now Wash Your Hands as well from the same sort of session. So the stuff that they worked on, we did eventually hear. There's also... I've read a quote from Fish saying that um, John Arneson was getting 20% cut of all the live stuff they were doing at that point. And um, there was a proposed American tour where the band would have to borrow £14,000 from EMI, but Arneson would still get 20% off the top. So all of these things came to a point where Fish kind of said, it's John Arneson or it's me. And the man said, it's John Hello. Arneson. <laughs> so, Hello, see John. You later. See you later. So I created a, a, a vacancy. Yeah. Um, they advertised in, I think it was Melody Maker, wasn't Melody it? Melody Maker, yeah. In December yeah. 88 for a vocalist. And um, the ad was asking for tapes and CV or tapes and letters to be sent in. And I think there's a story from Ian on the, uh, on the season's end Blu-ray about him picking up the tapes from the office. And playing them and in the car. Listening to him driving across to meet the band and, He'd give it sort of eight bars, and if it was no good, <laughs> wang it into the back seat. <laughs> Probably out the window, though, in Ian, but yeah. yeah. Don't be sitting in the back seat with Ian, then. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, and then the tape for H made it into his, his player, and uh, he was really excited. Played it to the band. They were equally excited. So they invited Steve Round for an audition at Pete's house. You've all seen the documentary, haven't you? We've all yeah. seen yes. the documentary. Yes, yes. Yep. Do you want to tell a story about 
H losing his car. <laughs> he just parked it in the wrong place where he couldn't remember. Yeah, he went to a gig and parked his car up on a level crossing on the zigzags of a Just, year, next, a level just next to a level. Yeah, at Imperial College. Yeah. yeah. And uh, had such a good night, came out the gig, couldn't find his car, assumed it had been nicked. Stayed over with a, a friend. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the next day went back to see where his car was. And it was around the other side of Imperial College. So, but yeah, he was late to, to come to the audition with the band. And when he got there, the band were auditioning at Pete's house. And Pete has cats. And H is allergic to cats. So they had to stand outside and talk outside of the garage. I think they did eventually get him in. But, uh, Mark, we, we were talking online this week about other vocalists that were potentially in the mix. Yeah, there was um, uh, Stuart from Galahad. Stuart Nicholson, is it? Stuart Nicholson, which who you said, yeah. I know that Alan Reed auditioned because he's talked about it, I think. He even he went as far as to say what he'd actually sang. Um, Did he? Yeah, but I can't remember. I'll have a look and we'll, we can come back to it. There was a guy called Carl Sentence as well that supposedly... So where, who did he sing for? Carl Sentence. Yeah. Oh, he in Nazareth, in a, he's now he's in Nazareth. He was yeah. in a he was in a band called Persian Risk. Right. Okay. But, and I think they were like a new wave of British heavy metal sort of thing. Well, the well, same like uh, that would be it would be Sentence and the Paragraphs, wouldn't it? Really. I mean, back on the European <laughs> site, on Tim's European site, he's got a quote from Stuart Nicholson saying he recalls his audition at Nomis Studios. They played Kaylee Lavender. Blue Angel, Slange, Forgotten Sons, and jammed new material with me frantically trying to find lyrics that fitted the music. Yeah. Um, they also, it also said that Nigel Voyle from Cyan. Okay. Uh, but, but Cyan's Rob Breed's band, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've not heard that one before. Did you say, there's somebody else you said on that you'd heard a, a um, Christy Dignam from uh, from Aslan was right, yeah. Irish Irish band Aslan was one of the other names that was floating around. And Pete, there was a, I read an interview with Pete a while back where he mentioned that um, that had two of Cliff Richard's backing singers in for an audition. But I think he said something along the lines of they had to have them in on separate days because they didn't want them they didn't want them to know that each one had auditioned. I thought you were going to say because they didn't want them to burst into a burst of summer holiday. Or well, maybe or Devil Woman. Or... <laughs> Devil, Woman yeah. Devil Woman would have been corked. Yeah, <laughs> and I suspect that one of them was a guy called Keith Morell, who I knew, who I know sang sang backing vocals for Cliff Richard, but he was also in um, in a band called Aries. Right. Okay. And, um, and it's a all a bit called... hair metal, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it's all yeah, and a band called Mama's Boys. He was in as well. Oh no, Mama's Boys. Yeah. Come on, yeah. it was all the end of the eighties. It was all hair metal at the time, wasn't it? Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, I think there's a there's a quote from Pete here. Um, it was quite obvious when we started auditioning people that they thought they knew what we wanted, and none of them fitted the bill. We did have some quite hysterical moments with people prancing around with makeup on. It wasn't a case of knowing what we wanted, but knowing what we didn't want. So I think some some guys were coming in trying to sort of emulate what Fish had done before. So yeah. they didn't get Captain Sensible turning up or anything like that? No. <laughs> They've not admitted it, Mike, you know. Uh, <laughs> in the documentary, that Mark Kelly said that H's voice had a Gabriel-esque quality to it, which was part of the attraction. That's um, something I've never ever twigged on before. I don't know about anybody else. I actually even think if you actually look at um, some of his press photos that were probably sent to the band as well, he did have that look as well, you know, Um 
Yeah, some of the stuff from the Europeans' videos and things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that. History recalls that they worked on King of Sunset Town in Pete's garage at the first audition. And using Helmer's lyrics, H came up with a melody line straight away. They felt there was some chemistry. Yeah, because they'd got John Helmer in, hadn't they? And, yeah, uh... so I think Rothers talks about it in the documentary. They, they were sort of covering covering all bases by getting a lyricist in. So it didn't yeah. matter if the new singer wasn't capable of coming up with the lyrics. They'd just have to find the vocal melodies. Yeah, I spoke to, I spoke to Mark a few years ago after a gig, and he was saying they met with, um, believe it or not, Vivian Stanchel. Yeah, oh, yeah, wow. I remember at that, one yeah. point, yeah, yeah. Wow, that would have been so interesting. That would have been, yeah. It would have, it would have been definitely on vibes. Adolf Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> Henry's end. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very good. So they offered they offered H the job, and he went away to think about it, didn't he? He wasn't sure because he'd been offered the job of playing keyboards for the the, 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 the yeah on the Mind Bomb tour. And also he had his uh, audition for uh, United Dairies as well, didn't he? He did, he did, yeah. He'd got this yeah. grand life plan of being a milkman. Wasn't um, HSS a musician on the, the previous album to the Mind Bomb? He played keyboards on, um, oh, God. Um, it was on Infected, yeah, it was on Infected. And it was All right, a... okay. It was clearly thought that it was an infinitely Heartland. cool to go on tour with, wasn't it? He, he thought he was going to be part yeah. of the coolest band in the world for being on tour. Well, that's right, because yeah. Johnny Marr was playing guitar on the tour, wasn't that's he? That's right, yeah. yeah. Far cooler than this option. It was Heartland, the song. Right. Oh, so, then that's uninfected. Yeah, played piano on it. Yeah. Cool. Great song. So, yeah, he had a choice to make, and I think he's... He made the right one. Well, he tells a story in on the, on the documentary that he got the phone call to invite him to the audition, the phone call from Bruce Welsh's son, Dwayne Welsh, who was working for Arneson at that point. But after being offered the job, I think H was veering towards the 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 the, the job. And he went for a drink with his mate Daryl Way, who said, Don't discount me really, and they're a good bunch of guys, because he'd worked with Ian. So he did H came back with a proposition that we know the story of him being attacked by a bass player in, in a previous band on a boat. So he he knows that being in a band is not just about getting along musically. It's about getting along with the people in the band. So H proposed going away, working up some songs and kind of living living together for a few weeks to see how they how they got on before committing totally to the to the band. You'd also alluded to um feeling a little bit maybe it's crestfallen, a bit down about like having to play songs and, and bring songs to the record company and then knock them back and I I got the sense he didn't really maybe prefer going away and playing keyboards than being the front man of and having to front something up like that. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. I'm I'm pretty sure a quote from him in that in the documentary is he didn't want to be front and centre. He just quite liked being the cool in the coolest band coolest band in the land at the back playing keyboards. Mm-hmm. But it didn't work out that way, did it? Thankfully not. No. Um so they went to the mushroom farm, I think. That's where they were working up the tracks and used some of the lyrics that Helmer had. I think Easter came out of the bucket while they were in Brighton as well. He's red bucket. Yeah, so H, H had a red bucket with demos and song ideas on tapes in it. And apparently the that Rothery solo was made up on the spot. And what a bloody good solo it is too. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the Rothery solos, isn't it, of all time. But things worked out well at the Mushroom Farm. So 
I think it was announced that H was a member of the band in February and in March they moved to Buckend Manor with Nick Davis producing. So it's somebody that they'd worked with before. So was he the tape oh. engineer on Clutching, wasn't he? Yes, yeah. So he they'd worked with him before, so they felt uh they they were assured by that and they felt they could trust him. But also EMI because he was he was he was only known as an engineer at that point, he was quite cheap. So that ticked the box for EMI. As opposed to the initial person who was lined up. Kimsey. No, before that. To the follow-up, after clutching at straws, they'd, they'd got Bob Ezrin. But that fell apart, didn't it, Mark? Yes. But on the documentary, Pete says that he did, that Ezrin came down to the studio and sat in with them for uh, presumably pre-season's end. Wasn't impressed with anything that they'd come up with, but then he went off and did the division bell with Pink Floyd. And uh, if you listen to Take It Back and you listen to the release, yeah, um, uh, yeah. The, I'm not I'm not saying he knocked it off, but you uh, know, there's passing passing similarities. Yeah, you're not saying you should take it back. I'm not saying he knocked. Yeah, you should have took it back. Hey, yeah. hey. <laughs> okay. Well, um, yeah, I mean. We'll be sued again. That's all right, Mark. You know. It's all right. Uh, yeah. He hasn't had to go with any Polish listeners this week, so often. Not yet. Yeah, a, a Not Polish yet. listener. Yeah. This time, this time, we're down to one Polish listener now, are we? We've lost one. Possibly. So anyway, the band were in um, Hooken Manor for three months over the summer, and uh, Mr. Kelly uh, made a bit of a promise at the local pub that the band would play in the local pub, the Crooked Billet. This was while I was still recording the album, and um, I'm sure a lot of you have seen the vi- the snippets of video on from Stoke Road to Ipanema, where they play a really small room in the Crooked Billet, and they have to climb in through the window. Yeah, looks like it was a warm one. It was, does, doesn't it? Yeah. And that was billed as the low-fat yogurts. Have you seen the set list from that night, guys? Oh, not for ages. Oh, no. Then, uh, started with Slange, then... Debut for King of Sunset Town, Warm Wet Circles that time of the night, debut for Uninvited Guest and debut for Easter, uh, Kaylee Lavender, debut for Hooks in, Hooks in Me. Hooks in Me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, After Me was the last song. So I don't well, think I've you. actually met anybody offhand who actually claimed to be there at the night. You usually yeah. get people go, oh, I was there. I don't yeah. That. Anybody who claims they were there, not offhand. I wasn't there for once. I'm surprised you weren't at the front measure. <laughs> no, no, I was. I wasn't there, Mikey. I've got to say, I worked with a. I worked with a guy that was there. You work. You work for five guys. Steve Rothery. <laughs> Walked into that dinner. Walked into that. I think the story is quite funny on the on the documentary as well about uh, Fish with his cease and desist uh, lawyers turning up because he. You know, part owned part of the equipment and stuff. That that just gets to the level of lawyers spending money, isn't it? Yeah, it's just it's it's just an ex- it's all about lawyers making you know making money, isn't it? It's, it's just getting stupid. I took it as a bit of a because at that point they were both rushing to get their album out first, weren't they? Mm, yeah, and I took that as a bit of a delaying tactic by Fish, hoping to get you know get one up on the band and and complete Vigil sooner. That's why I read that, yeah. Because we know that he wasn't happy about having to sit on Vigil. 
It's and it certainly... was very six months, I think six months prior to it was released as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a good interview in Edwin's book, isn't there? The uh, Marillion Fish Files. Yes. Uh, with Fish around that time, and he doesn't hide his frustration. But yeah, the, we've already recommended Edwin's book, but it is really good. It's really good. I don't recommend it highly enough. No, absolutely. Um, first of August, then they they filmed the promo for Hooks in You uh, at Brixton Academy. And I don't the... think they've actually cleared this since, have they? It's not a venue that they that they've ever gone to. I don't know. I was. I mean, they invited uh, web members to go. Uh, apparently, eight hundred people there. Were you um, a member of the web at the time, there, John? I was, but I don't know why. I mean, it wasn't like round the corner from me, which is probably why I didn't go. But there was a shiny light on. I know. I know, a video camera as well, and I still wasn't there. But apparently the band, between the filming, played clips or, or tracks from Season's End so that the fan club could hear some of the tracks. And uh, they did a live acoustic version of After Me, but it was the first real official appearance with H. And then the album was released on the 25th of September. Ooh. Now, Mikey's been having a look doing his uh, pop-tastic uh, investigations that he likes to do on these things. Pop-tastic look... me. Pop-tastic me. You, <laughs> you knew you love it. In 1989, and, and what was around and about and what was uh, what was bothering the charts uh, around about the time of Season's End coming out? Well, yeah, um, 89, an eclectic year, as anything is from 80s through to the 90s. Um, but I'd be interesting to know what album Meza bought the week that Season's End came out. Why, um, what else came out? Number one that week. Go on. Tears for Fears, The Seeds of Love. Amazing album. Amazing, Amazing album. album. And I can guarantee that's what my pocket money went on that week. Yeah. Um, because... <laughs> Interestingly enough, that's what another, there was a song from that on that tape me, that my dad did us with the three songs that I liked off Season's End. Uh, Year of the Knife was on that tape. So. Oh, that's ju- that's oh. the best track on the album. Year yeah, the fantastic, night. isn't it? It's yeah. absolutely epic. Um, and about as prog as Tears for Fears ever got, but that album in itself is just genius. Um, and of course, yeah, at the time, was. I wasn't really in full Marillion swing. Um, and to be fair, um, when I've been looking at a lot of the albums that came out in 1989... The best-selling album of the year, believe it or not, was Jason Donovan's Ten Good Reasons. Tell us <laughs> you didn't have that. Yeah, it's funny because I'm... I think it's Ten Good Reasons not to buy it, but <laughs> you had some hard hitters that year. And to be fair, um, even the the top 20, the week that Season's End came out, I think Marillion did really well to perform as well as they did. What um, number did it get to? Mix, Donna's, uh, sorry, Madonna's Like a Prayer, Pumped by Aerosmith. It was a tough week, you know. Um, Tina Turner's Foreign Affair was at number two. Um, but very eclectic, the album charts. What number yeah. did it get to? Number seven. Seven? Okay, that's good. Yeah, seven. Um, but yeah, I mean, they were up against hard hitters that year. Simply Red, Phil Collins. Like I said before, Madonna, you got Chris Rea. Deacon Blue, Guns N' Roses, Simple Minds. They were all big albums that yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Um, things like Chris Rears wrote to hell was that? Was that? Yeah, yeah it's, absolutely. Yeah. Steel Wheels. Yeah, yeah. Stro- Strolling Bones. Yeah. 
yeah, some really, really big albums that year. And a lot of new artists were springing up. Um, you had like Beautiful South, Holly Johnson's first solo album came out that year. Um, even had Cliff Richard's first album with Stodaker and Waterman Stronger. Um, all of them appearing in the top 100 albums of 1989. Yeah. Um, a really good year, I think, for music. Very eclectic. If you like pop, rock, metal, it, it was all on the go. Do you think the band would have been pleased with number seven? Possibly not, but I still think um, a, a number seven chart position that week is not to be sniffed at. I can't remember. Did Clutchy get to number one? Two. 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 Yeah. Misplaced yeah. was one, Clutchy was two, yeah? yeah? I think the problem being, though, is because they were so desperate and determined to get the album out before Christmas and before Fishers, they'd, they'd missed the the summer window and they had to get it out before like October and November into the Christmas market because it had been in with the, the general Christmas market but back in the day when Woolies and things were such it was still a thing where people going and buying people like albums and CDs and stuff for Christmas it would have got completely lost if they'd wanted a better chart position it would have made more sense for them to hold it back till January yeah so, agreed. well they were booked out on, they went out on tour in October yeah. So it, was all... it, it needed to it needed to be out as as fast as it paid to possibly could. Yeah. You know, hence yeah, yeah. fish being held back into uh into nineteen ninety. But he fared a bit better with with a number five chart position. But album sales album sales wise they were probably quite close to each other. That was number five in January, which is a weaker chart, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my my big album of 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 summer of '89 was Queen's The Miracle. Okay. I was a teenager. We liked Queen. I love Queen, the but miracle. the miracle. No, no. I was, no, I was sixteen. No. I was sixteen when it came out. You know, young and impressionable. I loved. I loved Breakthrough and Scandal and stuff. Yeah, there's got some good stuff. I mean, did you get? It's not a Queen podcast. I apologize. <laughs> what I'm about to say? But, did you get the reissue with the second? Oh yeah, I got the box set. Fantastic. I just got the two CD because Deacon's ending on the Miracle is far better than what they put out. It was really good, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really good. Really good. Anyway. This is why we always go Queen-tastic. <laughs> I've just slagged off the Miracle and then found something that's brilliant about it. But there you go. Genius are bollocks. <laughs> yes. So, in August, the first single, Hooks in You. Hooks. The fan base. Hooks. Hooks in You. The Hooks. fan base. Pooped themselves, I take it. Um, it was what a massive, hell this? Who's this new It person? was a massive disappointment. Even a single. What's going on? It was, we were all waiting for the first thing to come out, and it was, yeah, a bit, bit tepid, if I'm honest. I wasn't over in yeah. yeah. I mean, it was I great. They were back, but they got pop, pop with short hair singing heavy that's metal. One way of putting it. Well, that's, yeah. not, that's not what I said at the time. I was a bit more industrial. About it, but uh, so when when H was announced, when H was announced, you know, as being fans at the time, what what was your initial thoughts with like the pictures of the guy and the the whole? I mean, he just got got a short image that the band were putting forward. Yeah, he got a short haircut, but I mean, this was pre-internet, really. So what we do now is you go online and you you Google the Europeans and Google how we live, and we didn't have any of that, you know. If you knew how we lived, then you knew what we'd done. But I, did, I really didn't know much about him. I was glad that they'd sorted it out and come out really quickly. 
Did um, you find out from a magazine like Kerrang or something first, or did it was it something through the web? Well, it wasn't the Friday Rock Show, sure, and it Friday Rock Show, sure, yeah. yeah, Friday uh, Rock Show. Sure. Because the Friday um, Rock Show was announced that Fish had left. So was it Friday Rock Show had got the exclusive that H had came on? Yeah, board? yeah, I think so. I mean, I didn't hear, we've gone through this before, but I didn't hear Fish leaving on the Friday Rock Show. Um, but I have to say, the initial, I mean, there was there was after me on the B-side, so it was something to lessen the blow, but you weren't sort of, I mean, the Marillion singles up to that point weren't particularly the strongest tracks, were they? Maybe, no, not really. maybe the odd exception, assassin might be an exception. I mean, Kaylee but, didn't help for them. <laughs> but yeah, it was. I uh, can't really remember that period between the single and the album coming out because as soon as I heard the album, you knew it was all right. I was. I went in the opposite direction. But who can you? I preferred the. I liked the meaty mix. I thought that was really oh, good. Meaty mix was fantastic. That was. 80s-tastic, isn't it? That, I yeah. really, really liked that. And then when I got the album, I was I was, I was more like, uh, not sure. No, that and was then, the I saw, then, I, then I lost interest for a long time. So, My ex-brother-in-law is was a massive Rush fan, and I played him season's end, and he was absolutely bowled over. You know, it was so... I mean, yeah, I just... I can't... I can't say how... I was absolutely overjoyed after hearing Hooks in You and then hearing the album, it was everything's gonna be all right. It really so was. Did you did you go obviously the first day of release straight down to which what which record store did you get it in New York? I got it from Track. Track Records in York doesn't exist anymore. It was legendary track. Remember Track? Yeah, yeah. You all remember Track. Yeah. Keith, Keith on Track. Yeah, I've been down to Track that first day, bought it. Vinyl, C D, cassette. Picture disc, which did you get? I think I got the cassette and the picture disc because it's preceded. Well, no, actually, no, it's not preceded. I've got the CD and the picture disc. That's right. I think I got just the CD. No, I've I've got got the the vinyl now, but at the time I just got the CD. Yeah, I've got the picture disc, I think, um, because we were starting to move into the CD era. So uh, that was my preferred format. But yeah, no, it's. uh, I mean, we'll talk a bit when we talk about the touring. I mean, that that again was a bit of a can he do it live, you know? For me and Mikey, we we didn't get Season's End until the January because I think we got Season's End the same time as we got Vigil, if I remember right. But uh, yeah, and then soon as soon as here, soon as here, and it was like, yep, I'll be liking that. Yeah, yeah, and um, back then I was proper poor. And didn't have a CD player, so holding up said vinyl um, was my first Marillion album proper, bought on the old black 12-inch. It's still quite a place. I think you're the only one here that's got that now. I've got a copy. (laughs) No, I've got it as well, I think. I think I've got one somewhere. Beautiful inside. Absolutely gorgeous. I've got the 2013 issue. Love it. Yeah, it's good. Fantastic. There we go. So that's the lead up to season's end. Yes. And lead up to the the album launching. So we'll uh, finish part one now. And we'll uh, dive into the meeting the bones in part two. It's good night for me. And it's good night from him. Take care. Stay alive. (laughs) Hey, Houston.
Big Houston. Thanks for listening to Planet Marzipan Podcast. Please like and subscribe from whichever platform you get your podcasts from. You can contact us at planetmarzipanpodcast at gmail.com and check out marillion.com, fishmusic.scot or fishmusic.eu for all the good stuff. <laughs>